All right, the Lord be with you. Let me open with this fine Augustinian collect that we said this morning. Almighty God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Pour your love into our hearts and draw us to yourself, and so bring us at last to your heavenly city, where we shall see you face by face. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, so I was handed, offered, offered the, the daunting task of uh, saying something this morning about St. Augustine on grace. And, and St. Augustine has very many things to say about grace, and, and many of them were important things, uh, philosophically and theologically and certainly in the history of the church. Um, they're also rather confusing and possibly conflicting things. So as I was preparing this, having lots of thoughts swirling around in my head, uh, it occurred to me that this might best be depicted in the form of a dialogue. Uh, so I've enlisted the aid of a few students. Um, this is Evodius. He was one of Augustine's students, and uh, he'll, he'll be starting us off. Uh, we'll also be picking up some other characters along the way, including Pelagius. This will be Pelagius. Uh, <laughs> Pelagius was a British monk, roughly contemporaneous with Augustine, uh, who Augustine thought undercut the necessity of grace for salvation. Uh, and wrote a lot of polemical works against. Uh, we also have Semi-Pelagius. Uh, Semi-Pelagius is not a real person, uh, but rather the personification of a sort of watered-down outgrowth of Pelagianism uh, that was condemned as a heresy at the Council of Orange about a hundred years after Augustine's death. Uh, and then, just because I couldn't resist, uh, we have Thomas Aquinas, uh, who is a 13th century Dominican friar, so writing considerably after Augustine's own life, uh, but who is very much an admirer of Augustine's work uh, and may have a helpful suggestion for us this morning. Um, so I offer this with many apologies to St. Augustine himself. Uh, and also counting on all of you to weigh in afterwards, raise the unraised questions that need to be raised, and also uh, fill in the uh, unsaid things that ought to be said about Augustine on grace. I, I am no expert here, and I, I, I count on all of you to uh, fill in afterwards what, what needs to be filled in. Um, so Augustine's dialogue on the free choice of the will in fact, begins with Evodius, uh, the other character, raising a certain sort of question for us. Uh, and I will invite Evodius forward. Isn't God the cause of evil? Of evils suffered as punishment for our sins, yes, God is indeed the cause. But of evils done as sins, no. The evildoer is the cause of their own wrongdoing, 
since they wouldn't be punished justly if their deeds weren't performed voluntarily. So what is the source of our wrongdoing? You have hit upon the very question that worried me greatly when I was still young, a question that wore me out, drove me into the company of heretics, knocked me flat on my face. I was so hurt by this fall, buried under a mountain of silly fairy tales, that if my love of finding the truth hadn't secured divine help, I wouldn't have been able to get out from under them to breathe freely and begin to seek the truth. And since such pains were taken to free me from this difficulty, I will lead you on the same path that I followed in making my escape. And a little bit of backstory here, that was actually a direct quote from the dialogue. That's Augustine talking about his youth. Uh, he was evidently a, a, a rather wayward young man, uh, something of a sex addict as far as we can tell. Um, but sex addiction, besides the episode that he really obsesses about in, in his famous work, The, Confes the Confessions, uh, is when he and a whole bunch of buddies went and swiped some pears from a pear orchard near where he lived. Uh, and as far as we can tell, what seems striking to Augustine about this episode is just how unmotivated it seems. <laughs> Why would I do such a thing, Augustine says. And here's what he writes about it in his Confessions. This is another quote. I pilfered that of which I have already sufficient and much better, nor did I desire to enjoy what I pilfered, but the theft and sin itself. There was a pear tree close to our vineyard, laden with fruit, which is tempting neither for its color nor its flavor. To shake and rob this, some of us wanted young fellows went late one night and carried away great loads not to eat ourselves, but to fling to the very swine, having eaten only some of it. And to do this pleased us all the more because it was not permitted. Behold my heart, O oh my God, behold my heart. Let my heart tell you what it was seeking there, that I should be gratuitously wanted, having no inducement to evil but the evil itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved my own error, not that for which I erred, but the error itself. Base soul, falling from your firmament to utter destruction, not seeking anything through the shame, but the shame itself. And that, I think, is an incisive bit of commentary on our own hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, about uh, what is there in our hearts when we sin. Uh, the other important bit of backstory here at this point, Augustine mentions the uh, company of heretics and the silly fairy tales that he got caught up in. Um, one way that Augustine tried to cope with the presence of evil, sin, wrongdoing in his own life was by sort of veering off into the company of manichae heretics, who were sort of cosmic dualists who wanted, uh, in some way or other, to blame all sinfulness, all wrongdoing on the body. And they wanted to say that the forces of the spiritual the immaterial, the non-physical, were good, and those of the body were bad, and thus explain away why it is that we sin. 
Augustine eventually decides this is a terrible idea. These are silly fairy tales, as he puts it. This just isn't going to answer the question. So what does answer the question exactly? Uh, let us read on. All right, so here's Augustine. What is wrongdoing? Inordinate desire, allowing one's desires to dictate one's actions rather than ruling them according to God's eternal law. How does this happen? Only its own will and free choice can make the mind a companion of cupidity. We are said to suffer bitter penalties deservedly because we abandoned the stronghold of virtue and chose to be slaves to inordinate desires. How can this be? I agree that all sins come about when someone turns away from divine things that truly persist and towards changeable and uncertain things. Our argument showed that we do evil by the free choice of the will. But since free choice gives us the ability to sin, should it have been given to us by the one who created us? Unquestionably, God should have given us free will, since without it, we couldn't live rightly by rightly ordering our loves according to God's eternal law. The motion away from God's law is surely not from God, but as for the source of its motion away, if I told you that I don't know, you might be disappointed, but that would be the truth. For one cannot know that which is nothing. A little bit more backstory here. Um, first, Augustine talks about inordinate desires, and there he is referring to his celebrated view that our happiness, uh, our well-being, our flourishing, consists in an ordo amoris, rightly ordered loves, loves that are ordered by reason, looking to God's eternal law and commands and ordering our desires accordingly. As for the claim, Augustine mentions here that one cannot know that which is nothing. Uh, the idea there is that evil, strictly speaking, is not a thing. It is rather a sort of absence of goodness, uh, a falling away from goodness, a falling away from uh, God's eternal law and from keeping our eyes fixed on God himself as the ordering principle in our lives. Uh, in the Confessions, Augustine says he got this idea of evil as a sort of absence or falling away uh, from reading the books of the Platonists. He writes, you procured for me, you God procured for me, by the instrumentality of one inflated with the most monstrous pride, certain books of the Platonists, translated from Greek into Latin. Augustine didn't read Greek very well, so they needed to be translated into Latin. And therein I read, not indeed in the same words, but in the same self-same effect, enforced by many and various reasons, that iniquity was not a substance but a perversion of the will bent aside from you, O God, the supreme substance, toward these lower things, and casting out its bowels and swelling outwardly. Um, so Augustine says that sin, wrongdoing, is strictly speaking no thing. 
nothing. And hence he says, if we can't understand it, if we can't kind of get to the bottom of it, that's very understandable because there's nothing there to be understood, quite literally. So here's what he says in conclusion, continuing on. Uh, nothing can make the mind a slave to inordinate desire except its own will. For the will cannot be forced into such iniquity by anything superior to it or equal to it, since that would be unjust, or by anything inferior to it, since that would be impossible. Only one possibility remains. The movement by which the will turns from enjoying the creator to enjoying his creatures belongs to the will itself. Well said, Augustine. And <laughs> by the same token, the movement by which the will rightly orders the passions according to God's law comes from itself too, right? What we do, what we need to do is fix our eyes on the good example Christ set for us, get our unruly loves in order, and sin no more. And God will in turn reward us with his gracious blessing. That's the message of the gospel, isn't it? What? No! <laughs>
grace is wholly responsible, even for our willing to accept God's gracious assistance in the first place. It is all gift from top to bottom. I call the initial act of accepting God's grace faith. But I maintain that the act of faith by which we accept God's help is a gift just as much as the reordering of our desires that grace affects in us after we believe. I call the grace that moves us to faith prevenient, coming before, and the grace that assists us cooperating grace, but grace of whatever sort is free gift, entirely unearned by merits on our part. The spirit of grace causes us to have faith in order that through faith we may, on praying for it, obtain the ability to do what we are commanded. But then, why is it God that causes evil? What? <laughs> I already told you why he is the cause of evil. Well, yeah, there was all that metaphysical business about why, in a strict sense, God can't be the cause of evil because evil isn't the thing there to be caused, but rather the disordering of our desires due to the wills falling away from God's eternal law. Fine, that's all very well and good. But aren't you telling us now that God withholds grace from some who knew perfectly well but necessarily sin without it? Exactly. Think about it. On my view, grace still plays a very important role, enabling us to resist the corrupting tendencies we inherit original sin, but it's at least up to us to accept grace through faith or reject it, which explains why some receive it and some don't. What's your explanation, though? God just arbitrarily decides to dole out grace to some and not to others? Why wouldn't he just have given grace to all? I'm trying to throw you a bone here. <laughs> You're totally undercutting your sensible explanation why God isn't on the hook for our well, so what if God predestines only some to receive grace, even though he could have done so for all? I'm standing by my earlier claim that sinfulness is the result of free will turning away from God's law and getting into inordinate desires. That I'll never give up. But maybe I did overemphasize freedom a bit earlier in my career. I used to think that the faith whereby we believe in God is not God's gift, but that it is in us from ourselves, and that by it we obtain the gifts of God. For I didn't think that faith was preceded by God's grace, so that by its means would be given to us what we might profitably ask. That we should consent when the gospel is preached to us, I thought was our own doing, and came to us from ourselves. But this, my error, is sufficiently indicated in some works of mine written before I became a bishop. And I hadn't yet very carefully sought, nor had I as yet found, what is the nature of the election of grace, of which the apostle says, a remnant are saved according to the election of grace. That's Romans 6, 5. Which assuredly is not grace in any merits preceding, lest what is now given, not according to grace, but according to debt, be rather paid to merits than freely given. 
That's really the best you're going to be able to give us. <laughs> what? If you're asking me, why should God punish me more than some other, or set free another rather than me, then I won't say. If you ask why, I admit that I don't find anything to say. If you ask further why this is, it is because in this matter, even as God's anger is righteous and as his mercy is great, so too his judgments are inscrutable. I'll quote St. Paul at you. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me thus? If you're not satisfied with that and want to go dashing off into heresy, that's up to you. But as for me, I'm going to side with Plato and St. Paul in following the argument wherever it leads, even if it does lead to some puzzling conclusions. Could I interject here with a different part of the suggestion? By all means, talk some sense into him. I'll try, but not in the way you're wanting me to. I'm a big fan of the work of Augustine, but I'm not such a big Plato fan. Here's my proposal. We don't want to be Pelagians, or even semi-Pelagians, but you seem to have assumed so far that either we actively will to accept God's grace, or else we actively will to reject it. Maybe, though there's a third option other than that, involves neither accepting nor rejecting. Maybe the will can simply shut itself off. We just stop willing. Supposing we're living sinful lives, actively rejecting grace, but that at some point we stop doing that, and indeed simply stop willing. At that point, I want to say, the grace God freely offers to all will step in and give us the faith that, as you rightly say, is our will to first motion toward accepting God's aim in reforming our sinful desires. So, are you saying it's kind of like the famous scene I wrote about in Confessions Book 8, after I had read the books of the Platonists and ditched those silly manatee fairy tales, but still couldn't quite escape my sex addiction? It was the weirdest thing. There I was, crying my eyes out in my friend Olympias' garden because I couldn't overcome my sinful desires. Then I heard these invisible children singing, Take up and read. So I grabbed my Bible and read the first passage my eyes fell on, Romans 13, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And all of a sudden, as the sentence ended, a light as it were, of security, infused into my heart, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. That's right. You had ceased actively resisting God's grace, but you couldn't actively will to accept it until, upon hearing St. Paul's words, God extended the prevenient grace that gave you the faith to accept his insistence reforming your disordered desires, what you and I call cooperating. Well, I hadn't thought of that. So your suggestion isn't Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, 
because all the willing involved in coming to faith is the result of God's grace. Exactly. Yet God's grace is extended freely to all those who cease actively wanting to reject it. So I should continue to insist that original sin totally destroys our ability to will rightly apart from grace, yet I can also provide an explanation why God predestines some but not others? Right again. He predestines those who he knows eternally cease to resist his aid. Huh. That just might work. <laughs> Too bad I didn't think of it. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to leave a pretty complicated legacy to my readers in the later Middle Ages. <laughs> particularly for a certain Augustinian monk named Martin. <laughs> Good thing I won't be around to sort through that mess. You can wait for another day. Sort of looks from the eternal vantage 
one to choose to accept me, which one to choose to reject me. They choose to stop doing Exactly. They choose to stop rejecting me, but they can't choose to accept me unless I give that to them, right, by my grace, through faith. But they're Martin Luther or I would assume Calvin. I think so, yeah. Would have problems. I think they probably would, yeah. Um, you know, like, like I said, this is a complicated legacy of the paper Middle Ages. Um, just to reaffirm it, uh, Quine's point about ceasing to resist uh, some who've read uh, Anna Mott's uh, description of her own conversion. She senses the presence of Christ in her room one night. Saint Paul says it. 
Maybe that's really what we should say, but that kind of rubs a lot of people the wrong way. You know? say maybe the Bible's right. <laughs> <laughs>
other than literally coming to the end of himself. And I think we might be able to delve into, well, the nature of the person is, some people say you have this will, you have mind, you have body, you have spirit. Can you perhaps, and there's some more modern thinkers that say it, you know, if you quiet the mind, and you might be able to experience something along the lines of a surrendering without losing, without having no energy whatsoever, uh -huh. without being broken. Yeah. And, and I know in a lot of philosophy there is a study on the nature of the person and all the elements and mechanisms of consciousness. So can you can we figure out like where will it begins and ends and what other mechanisms are operating in the person that might enable us to experience that grace and that movement towards a good action without uh, effortfully moving in that way ourselves. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, very, that's a very good point that figuring out you know, the mechanics of how willing works and how willing relates to you know, our passions and emotions and desires and so forth on the one hand, uh, our reason on the other hand, you know, thinking through the right thing to do is going to be an extremely complicated matter. Uh, and figuring out just, just which one exactly is in the driver's seat in a particular case is going to be very hard to sort out. Um, Augustine himself famously offers us the uh, image of, of the mind itself, will, reason, memory, uh, as an image of the Trinity. And the idea is that these things are like so closely intertwined that you know separating them out from apart from one another is, is just going to be impossible. Um, so I think that, that, that that's a, a suggestion you would be very favorable to. Um, well, I was thinking that so this this talk of like you kind of come to the end of your rope, and that's when God sort of gives you this great enabling mm -hmm. to choose Him. Mm -hmm. That seems to work well for you know an adult who has a big conversion experience. But what about somebody who's just grown up in church, mm -hmm. in the faith, mm -hmm. and has just simply never questioned in their entire life Jesus is Lord? Like, I mean, think of somebody who's grown up in like you know in a, in a country like if you're growing up in the United States. Yeah. There's never, there's probably never a point in a child's life where they think, oh, well, maybe I'll just go join this country and yeah. you know, rebel against this, you know. That's right. Yeah. And in the same way, can't children just sort of grow up in the faith? <coughs> yeah. Without having this come to the end of your rope moment. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I sort of feel like I did. Like, like I was raised in the church and don't, don't recall ever having a, a dramatic conversion experience. So you're asking, like, you know, where, where would the moment come when
don't publicize them too much. You know, that you're not um, those small changes, those, those slow turns are not the pivotal moments that you hear about um, coming to faith. Mm -hmm.